This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. It's a big one today, folks. We're going to wade a bit into the weeds of land ownership, but we'll frame it all in the context of two of the island's most prominent holy men. You can't see it, but I typed the word holy in quotation marks, as one of these men's holiness is certainly in doubt. Either way, it was a very enlightening chapter to research, as it would set the stage for English disparity in the age of the Norman kings. Today's episode, episode 96, is entitled, Everybody Hates Will, Bishops and Barons. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. As it turns out, Robert Kurt Hose might have tied all the various threads across northern France together in one single conspiracy against his father, the mighty King William I of England. And though he was able to focus on his duchy after his son tried to take the castle in the heart of the Norman capital city and then fled to his enemies, well, William heard news of things coming to a head back in England. Now, I bet your first reaction's probably the exact same as William's when he heard, which is to throw your hands up in the air and ask, what now? But I'll also bet that you were just as wrong as William. You're probably thinking of another rebellion. The problem, though, was that there literally weren't any more English nobility of high enough rank to lead a full-scale rebellion back in England. Waltheof lost his head, and he was the last big one on the island. Now, this this news brought a different kind of drama to William's ears, and it concerned Bishop Odo of Bayeux, William's half-brother. Lanfranc, William's widely respected, inside and outside of England, mind you, Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, those two guys. While William dealt with Robert Curdhose, there was quite the showdown between Archbishop Lanfranc and the Norman nobility blanketing the kingdom. Or Derek Vitalis quotes a Norman monk sent to England named Guimond when he writes, quote, Read the scriptures and see if there is any law to justify the forcible imposition on a people of God of a shepherd chosen from among its enemies. I deem all England to be the spoils of robbery and shrink from it and its treasures as from consuming fire. It's almost the exact opposite in American history, it seems, of, you know, the French sending, maybe they didn't send, but Alexis de Tocqueville came to America early on in its its, uh, history and wrote, you know, a a pretty beaming report. It's almost the exact opposite when they sent the monk, Guimont, to write from a French perspective in England. It's just an interesting uh, corollary there. Now, Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, confirms that Guimont was actually a real person. In fact, after serving William in England post-1066, Guimont headed to Rome for a spell and ended up living out the rest of his days as Bishop of Aversa, a Norman stronghold due to the Norman presence there, specifically from the likes of Reynolf Dringo, the first Count of Aversa. To add to it, Morris uses a term that struck home with me when I read it. 
he says that quite a number of Norman clergy and noble, or excuse me, nobility were looking at England as nothing but a quote-unquote colonial carve-up. And though William was the absolute leader of all of it, I mean, William was a feudal lord, there was one man who, from the pistol shot, was often running on gathering up as much property as he could. Consequences, the English and the church be damned. And this is where Bishop Odo of Bayeux enters the scene. And just in case it hasn't been stated clearly so far, Odo of Bayeux was the son of Herluin de Conteville and William's mother Herleva de Falais. And he had become the Bishop of Bayeux, hence his name, as early as 1049, having the post entrusted to him by Duke William himself. Odo of Bayeux was a man of God. I put that in quotation marks in my, in my readings here, my notes. Now, Odo is a prime example of the differences in the storytelling of the chroniclers. William's favorite groupie and head cheerleader, the insufferable William of Poitiers, called Odo, quote, the kind of man best able to undertake both ecclesiastical and secular business, end quote, in the king's absence from England, that is. However, Orderic saw him differently, as a man given to more, quote-unquote, worldly affairs than spiritual contemplation. So you see the differences there in how Odo of Bayeux was perceived. To begin with, since 1066, Odo, who had fought alongside William at Hastings, mind you, was entrusted equally with William Fitzosborne to run the affairs of the kingdom while William was across the channel. England was, for its few years post-1066, largely run by two men, William Fitzosborne and Odo of Bayeux. Fitzosborne became the first Earl of Herefordshire in the West, and Odo became the first Earl of Kent in the Southeast, but the kingdom was, for all intents and purposes, split between these two men. But according to the records, Odo seemed to have the edge in the arena of royal authority, being besties with, uh, with the king is one thing, being uh, blood-related and half-brother, that's another. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicles recorded, quote, He was the foremost man, that is, Odo, he was the foremost man after the king and was master of the land when the king was in Normandy, end quote. Orderic Vitalis follows this up with, quote, Odo had greater authority than all the earls and other magnates in the kingdom, end quote. And this is how Odo became less of a leader and more of a villain to the English. Orderic said the following of the king's half-brother. He says, quote, Odo was dreaded by Englishmen everywhere and able to dispense justice like a, get this, a second king, end quote. Now, there was something we should know about Odo before continuing. He was never a monk. I'll repeat that. He was never a monk. He skipped the line completely, having been blessed by chance to be born the brother of the duke. So, was he actually a man of God? It's understandable now why, throughout history, Bishop Odo of Bayeux seems to have had the proverbial asterisk by his name. There was nothing ecclesiastical about the man, really, which justifies Morris's own claim about Odo. He says, quote, 
A man of God, a man of the world, Odo was also clearly a man of war. End quote. Morris continues with an interesting piece of evidence. He says, quote, His own seal depicted him on one side as a bishop holding his crosier, but on the other side as a mounted warrior brandishing a sword. End quote. Morris refers to him as the bellicose bishop, I should add. To boot, Odo is depicted universally as having the single sign of a French warrior, the old mustache. Even the Bayou Tapestry, commissioned with near certainty by Odo himself, shows him on horseback riding into the fray at Hastings. Once again embarrassing himself, William of Poitiers described Odo as, quote, never taking up arms and never wishing to do so, end quote. Right. Good job there, William of Poitiers. Morris concedes the following about the bellicose bishop, though. He says, quote, Whatever reservations others may have had about his behavior, Odo clearly had no problems with the dual nature of his role, end quote. To each their own, I suppose. Well, that is, until they begin pushing others down along the way. And Odo of Bayou pushed plenty of his devoted sheep down as he rose higher and higher, like a, like a medieval yurtle the turtle. Unfortunately, this yurtle didn't have a medieval mac to knock him back down, King of the Mud style. Well, not the lowly mac that we know from the children's book anyway. In Mac's place in history, we have another man, a man of much higher social and political rank than Mac had down at the bottom of the stack. And this is when Lanfranc enters the scene. Now, we know a little bit already about Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury, but we need to pull the whole story together up to the early to mid-1070s for good measure. Lanfranc of Beck, Lanfranc of Canterbury, Lanfranc of Pavia. Regardless of what people called him, this man was universally beloved and respected. His time as Archbishop, in my estimation, could simply be described with one word, equilibrium. A tense one, certainly, but that would be his role in the English church after he took the Archbishopric of Canterbury at the orders of King William. However, before that, Lanfranc might have been pulling some strings for William leading up to the conquest of England itself, which is interesting. See, William and Lanfranc have an interesting relationship, uh, and that's putting it very mildly. While prior of Beck... Lanfranc publicly sided, get this, with Pope Leo IX against the marriage between William and Matilda. So, not a great way to enter into that friendship, I reckon. This was, what, 1049, 1050? However, by 1053, Lanfranc had come to Normandy and taken the post up after, for some reason, lost to history. He had become an advocate for the union between William and Matilda. We'll never know why. In 1066, just before William's departure to England, it was Lanfranc who traveled to Rome and secured the papal banner for William, adding some of that good old-fashioned Catholic warmongering to the conquest. It worked out that Lanfranc knew well Pope Alexander II, who was in the, in the office at that point. And this offered Lanfranc the opportunity to assume the inaugural role 
of abbot of St. Stephen's in Cain. Remember, this is the same St. Stephen's that would be commemorated 11 years later in 1077 and be the epicenter of the rift between William and Robert Curthose, his son. A year later in 1067, everyone turned to Lanfranc to rise to the prominent position of Bishop of Rouen, the head of the church in Normandy, when it was suddenly in need of one, but he was either too humble to accept such a title or... Or, he was holding out for something bigger, something he saw opening up on the horizon. Just be a little more patient. See, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, a universally despised character in ecclesiastic circles on the continent, well, he couldn't possibly last much longer under William, right? Lanfranc might have strategically been holding out for that position, a position that would afford him the opportunity to ensure that the English church forever now a thorn in Rome's side for marching to the beat of its own drum, would at last fully fall into the fold of the Pope's purview. It took a few years for William to navigate things on the island to the point where he could safely replace the hated Englishman with one more to his liking. This most definitely had been in the works for a while. I say this because of the absolute lightning speed it took to not just depose Stigand, but also to contact Lanfranc back in Normandy, go through the proceedings of Lanfranc's public show of humility, that he couldn't possibly accept such a role, for the support to flood in for Lanfranc's ascension, and finally, for Lanfranc to accept the role as God's will and humbly travel to Rome to receive the pallium. Oh, and then travel back to England to be officially consecrated as Archbishop of Canterbury. Think about that. So, Stigand was stripped of his authority by papal legates during the Winchester Councils over Easter of, excuse me, Easter on April 11th, specifically led by Bishop Ermenfroy of Sion, and then arrested and imprisoned by William immediately afterwards. So, that's April 11th. On August 15th, so April 11th to August 15th of 1070, he was officially no longer archbishop. April 11th to August 15th is a span of 126 days. That equates to four months, six days. Let's see. It would probably take at least a week to write up the official declaration and invitation to England and deliver it across the channel to Kane. So what's that, 116 days left? It takes a solid week, I'd say, to make the preparations for a trip to Rome in those days, gathering the men for security, the equipment and food and weapons and horses. I don't know. Maybe I'm severely under underestimating uh, that time as well. But let's go with that. About a week. 109 days left. The good news was that it wasn't winter, but it would take maybe two weeks to travel to southern France, to the Alps. Now, this would be, say, mid-May. And though Switzerland is certainly greening up and beautiful this time of year, I hear anyway, uh, ranging between 60 degrees and the low 40 degrees, or 16 degrees to 6 degrees Celsius, when you climb to the higher altitudes and through some of those passes, the weather's still pretty wintry, difficult, and unpredictable with chances of high snowfall or horrible winds or any of these late season sort of weather patterns. But let's say that Lanfranc, blessed with favorable weather the whole way, was able to travel from Normandy to Rome in, what, a month and a week. So, 
Now we're down to 72 days before he becomes archbishop. At least three weeks, maybe a month spent in Rome, because when you went anywhere a thousand years ago, it's not like you just call ahead an Airbnb and stay for two days before heading back, you know, for work on Monday. I've ridden a horse a few times in my life, and the hour or two I spent on them, as amazing as those creatures are, was plenty for me. I can't imagine spending 10 hours a day on horseback for over a month. I can only think that you'd want to, you know, kick your feet up and sit on a couch for a while after a journey from northern France to the middle of the Italian peninsula. So what are we at? 42 days and counting before he becomes archbishop way back north in England? Now you've got the same amount of time on the way back home to Cain from Rome. That's five days left. Five days until history has you in Canterbury, England, with your pallium, and officially becoming the archbishop there. I mean, as far as I know, I think it could happen, but that's like saying you left Rome, stopped only for gas, sleep, and, uh, you know, making water, only to stop by home to gather a few things before jumping on a horse for several hours to the coast. From there, you jump on a boat, pray the weather's fair, this is the channel, and arriving in England the next morning. Three days left? I mean, you got to be booking it. you got to be jetting. Three days left, maybe? Yeah, we can do this. Okay, from, say, Pevensey, you have a horse waiting on you, well-rested, and you hightail it across a quelled but still tense English countryside. Make no mistake, Lanfranc was very much a continental. You may have just one day left before you're able to lead services at the most influential sea in the whole kingdom. Okay. Admittedly, my time could be off a bit, but I don't think I'm too far off, and it just seems to me that William, having Lanfranc in his back pocket for about a decade at that point, wouldn't have said something like, uh, hey buddy, how's it going? Uh, prayer's going well? Yeah? Well, that's great. That's, uh, that's really great. Listen. Oh, yeah, England? Yeah, England is <laughs> awesome, right? Things are going, like, so great right now. Yeah. Yeah, hey. Uh, speaking of ink, oh, Matilda? Yeah, yeah, she's doing all right. Robert's still a pain in the ass, but, well, you know, kids, am I right? Speaking of England, uh, Lanfranc, buddy, pal, I got a great opportunity for you. Yeah, how would you like to be an archbishop? Investiture? What the hell's that? Oh, yeah, more pope things, whatever. So what do you say? I mean, at least that's how, you know, I saw the whole conversation playing out. Either way, in 1072, Lanfranc was elevated immediately after Stigand to become the first Norman-appointed Archbishop of Canterbury, and he most likely knew of the plan to oust Stigand in advance. That's what I'm saying. It had to be some sort of, I, I don't think I need to call it a conspiracy, but this was not a, oh, Stigand is out um, because we just found out he's, you know, not the guy, right? This is a guy that had plurality out the, you know, the you know what. He had a lot of problems and the continent did not like him for that. So clearly there was a plan against Stigand all along and I just refuse to think that Landfrank wasn't aware of it. Um, a bishop just doesn't up and leave. That's just not how it, you know, the way it worked. Well, I mean, to be quite honest, Stigand never even left his bishopric when he assumed Canterbury, which was part of the problem. 
So let's not forget that Stigand was excommunicated, by the way, by the Pope years earlier and had been years before even William took over. Getting rid of, getting rid of Stigand was an underhand pitch. I mean, it was easy. That was easy. And with Lanfranc on the island now, English ecclesiastical life was about to have a rude awakening. Lanfranc was a reformer at heart, which we've mentioned on the show previously, and not just any reformer, <laughs> not just any reformer. He was a reformer in the vein of Pope Leo IX and Gregory VII, who is coming up. And by definition, reformers didn't like the status quo, especially when the status quo was already under a great amount of suspicion to date. Hence, Stigand. And England's quote-unquote second king, if you remember that's what they said about Odo of Bayeux, was about to face the steadfast reformer in a showdown that would send ripples across English politics and ecclesiastic hierarchies. This whole thing between Lanfranc and Odo, shocker. But it was really about real estate. That's really what's at the heart of it. So let's take a few minutes to clarify a few things about who owned what in England. And follow me on this. Under the Anglo-Saxon regime, families such as the House of Godwin, the House of Leofric, the House of Bamborough, yeah, they all owned their lands. They gave portions of their tax collections to the king, and they recognized him as the central head of the kingdom. The Normans introduced a much more complex system that I'll go into detail about a little later, but suffice it to say that it was very different at its core compared to the Anglo-Saxon system. Feudalism came to English shores the moment Harold Godwinson fell atop Senlac Hill, surrounded by his men and his brothers. Almost immediately, land ownership rights were all but suspended, at least as far as William was concerned. After his coronation on December 25, 1066, in London, William couldn't wait to return to Normandy for what I've called his victory lap around the duchy, showing off his shiny new toys, such as Edgar Etheling and whatnot. Before he left, he split the kingdom in two. William Fitzosborne got the west and Odo of Bayou got the southeast, as I've said. That moment in and of itself is noteworthy as it was the first moment that William completely disregarded every scrap of confidence the English had in its land ownership system. It's, that, it's, it's just this simple right here. Under Edward, a nobleman, more or less, was the king of his castle, so to speak. Sure, the king's wishes took precedence, but no king would dare make serious moves against one of his nobles' lands without a really damn good reason. Under William? Yeah, nothing really was sacred. Under feudalism, William's system, at least the way he saw it, though he'd never accept such a thing back home in Normandy, mind you. I mean, the guy defeated his king on the battlefield on multiple occasions already. He was the ultimate owner of all the land within the kingdom. From him, and him only, came a nobleman's right to a piece of land or a castle or a town or something like that. It was by the grace of the king that a nobleman was noble, essentially. I told you, this is an incredibly simplified definition of feudalism, 
but it serves our purposes for the show here. William was king. William divvied out the land. And if you owned land prior to William becoming king, I mean, sorry. I mean, the rules are now rewritten automatically. And I'm sorry you didn't have any say in that, but that's the way it is. Any and all land within England was now a priori the king's. Now, with this in mind, as we know, William began parceling it all out. The first two and the biggest barons in the kingdom were, of course, William Fitzosborne and Bishop Odo of Bayeux. And when William returned from his victory lap around Normandy, the rest of England became fair game for his cronies. Now, let's talk specifics for a moment. The following information I received from Morris's book, The Norman Conquest, and the website Spartacus Educational. Spartacus Educational lays it out like this, quote, After his coronation, William the Conqueror claimed that all the land in England now belonged to him. William retained about a fifth of this land for his own use. Another 25% went to the church. The rest were given to 170 tenants-in-chief. That term is tenants-in-chief, or barons, essentially, who had helped him defeat Harold at the Battle of Hastings. These barons had to provide armed men on horseback for military service. The number of knights a baron had to provide depended on the amount of land he had been given. End quote. To put it bluntly, William stole England and stripped the Anglo-Saxon natives of every shred of their previous stations within the kingdom, or at least, you know, put those stations on the chopping block should it serve his interests. Tyranny at its finest. Morris adds several more cases as evidence of the just over half of England being carved out for foreign nobility. He writes, quote, Take, for example, the case of Ansgar the Staller, who was one of the richest men in England below the rank of Earl. Ansgar seemed to have fought at Hastings. He may indeed have been Harold's standard-bearer and looks to have received mortal injuries there. The last reference to him comes in the Carmen's account of the surrender of London, which Ansgar negotiated, despite being seriously injured. Soon thereafter, his position as Port Reeve of London, the equivalent to the later position of mayor, was in the hands of a Norman, Geoffrey de Mandeville, who at the time of the Doomsday Book was holding all of Ansgar's lands. Geoffrey, in other words, appears to have stepped into the place his predecessor had vacated. End quote. And Ansgar's case is hardly the only. The Doomsday Book is chock full of these stories. And I mean full of these stories. Regarding this new Norman baronage in England, it really began with William Fitzosborne, as we know, taking the western marches in order to hold back any possibility of Welsh incursions sensing weakness along the dike. Specifically, Fitzosborne took Herefordshire, Shropshire, and the Isle of Wight, while Odo took Kent. From there, Morris tells us of Meryl Swannes, uh, who fought with Hereward the Wake in 1070, only to have his lands forfeited to the Norman Ralph Pagnell. Quote, So too with Seward Barn, who was imprisoned after the fall of Ely. All his lands went to a Norman called Henry de Ferrer. End quote, Morris writes. 
Another example Morris gives us is of a man named Thurbrand, who was killed due to his associations. His lands in the Doomsday Book all belong to one Beringer de Tosny. Yeah, remember the Tosnies? Yeah, they're still around. This continued as William controlled more and more of the kingdom, and this shifting of land ownership occurred up through the early 1080s, having lost support for the conquest along the way. He still had to pay the men who stuck around, and those who stuck around longest expected larger and larger returns. The only return William really had was England itself. So that's the baronage side of things, how they got the land and I got to tell you, it's, it's shady at best, but seen from the Norman perspective, well, the Normans were the victors and they could rewrite the rules how they saw fit. So it just depends on which way you're looking at it. But that is the baronage side of things. Now, the church side of things would seem like a simpler matter. However, the church's involvement in land ownership could be just as complicated. If you remember Hereward the Wake's uncle, Abbot Brand of Peterborough, Bran tried to maintain his deceased brothers, that is, Hereward's father's, land, and approached William, personally actually, approached William about giving the land to Peterborough Abbey, which inexplicably threw William into a rage, according to the account. We don't really know why that would send him into a rage, but maybe it was the way that Abbot Brand was approaching him. I'm, I'm just not sure. Now, Abbot Brand was treated considerably worse than anyone else in those early years concerning land ownership. William actually took land from the Abbey in response, which was devastating for Peterborough Abbey. But why? Why should land be so important to an institution that dealt with higher purposes and the spiritual realm? Shouldn't worldly matters be a distant third to these? Well, I mean... No, no, not really. Despite what we feel about certain services in our society, money is what makes the gears turn and the doors open. Teachers are constantly shamed into things because, well, if we didn't do certain things regarding reports or other bureaucratic nonsense that has little, if anything, to do with the success of our students, then, well, obviously we just don't care enough about the kids, you know. That's... That's what we're made to feel. I can see churches having the same pressure. The problem is, nothing is free. Nothing. Even your spiritual needs, when it comes to any organized faith system, requires certain resources. And when people are involved in providing said services, then there are non-negotiables that are involved in that. Land, shelter, food and water, clothing, Nothing's free. When you add the sacred and the holy into the mix, well, now you're getting a bit more expensive, but you're also adding physical immensity that should accurately express the spiritual immensity of what is spoken of inside. A church, a chapel, a cathedral. We get the same side on, on the educational side of things. It's a service industry. What actually is produced in churches and schools that is quantifiable? 
All of it is so subjective and it's all so, so important. And some would say these are the two most essential uh, services that are provided within a society. But if it's not producing anything quantifiable per se, then how do you put a price on it? That's, that's just really the tug of war that happens. So again, a church, a chapel, a cathedral, we are impressionable creatures. And there's a reason why castles and cathedrals were the largest structures on the medieval landscape. There's a reason why today universities and, and goodness, even high schools now, in America anyway, are these grand, impressive structures what humans create directly reflect, reflects their spiritual needs, their, their societal feels, you know? And in my opinion, cathedrals of any faith, man, they, they're some of the grandest expressions of spirituality people have ever produced. As Henry Ward Beecher once said, quote, of all man's works of art, a cathedral is greatest, end quote. For an outstanding look at the multi-generational task it was to create such a massive and grand structure, I highly encourage people to read if you haven't already. Goodness, it's been around for a couple decades, but it is phenomenal uh, to read Ken Follett's Kingsbridge Quartet, beginning with the Pillars of the Earth. Now back to churches and their needs, though. One highly effective way of controlling people is to impress them. Control their thoughts and you control their actions, essentially. But again, it all begins with land, which kind of ties us back into this episode. And if the king owns every square inch of land, then how might churches get its own land upon which to hold its services? What does the king get in return is the real question here. As we just established, I mean, if the king gives a tenant-in-chief, or what we call a baron, land... He knows that there's going to be some sort of revenue coming in. Uh, it, it could be in the form of food or other resources, but some sort of revenue coming in. But most importantly, you get men, right? You get men at arms when called upon. What can a church give the king? That's essentially what we're getting at here on why land is so important for churches. And if you think it's as simple as, well, it's a... It's a church, so the king shouldn't have a say. And, well, then I hate to break it to you, but that's just sadly wrong. Just ask yourself why churches here in the United States get tax breaks and whatnot. The government is always involved in land ownership. The land I claim to own, the land I quote-unquote bought and built a house upon, yeah, the moment my local or state government wants to build a highway over it, it can easily, I, it can easily be bought out. I can be pushed aside. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. That's the reality. It cuts deep. It cuts really deep, especially in a place like the United States where we pride ourselves on the core concept of private property. Private property is at the heart of it all here. And, and really in the Western world, I'm just speaking from the American side of things. I mean, from crimes against our bodies, all of those terrible things, to crimes against our possessions, philosophically, it always comes down to private property. But a thousand years ago, King William I of England would have made you his court jester. 
for saying such a thing because such fantasies would have been absurdly hilarious. So what would have driven William to allow the church to have land? What could he possibly have been convinced of that he was willing to give up 25% of his total kingdom's land? Again, as I just said, with baronage, I'm just really trying to hit the point home. I hope I'm not overdoing it. With baronage, it's simple. William gives the land to his personal favorites who then manage the land, collect the taxes, saw the area remain productive and whatnot. In return, those barons would give William a cut. And the moment William required knights and soldiers, boom, there they are. Those barons would show up smiling and ready to die for the man who gave them everything. But churches. Well, believe it or not, it was somewhat similar. Even the part about supplying soldiers. Yeah. Mostly, though, the church offered ways to buy other spiritual services, such as monks praying for your eternal soul after you passed, the absolution of sins, and even papal support for a conquest. Churches needed kings to grant land, and within this land, they would typically hold sway over local towns and villages and fields from which they would pull taxes and foodstuffs, other resources. And in return, they would see to the spiritual needs of these lowly peasants. They also required patronage, though by the wealthier folks who would try to buy their way into God's good graces most times. What you want to refer to there is the Ermenfrid Penitential, which absolved William's soldiers of atrocities they committed against the English. And there were many. (laughs) Also refer to the construction of St. Stephen's in Cain, Normandy, as a way to get the, the Pope to withdraw William's excommunication after remaining married to Matilda. Also referred to the construction of over 4,000 churches in England under four Norman kings beginning with William I. I could go on, but the point, I hope, is made when a wealthy and powerful person believes something, like their eternal soul is contingent upon other people's thoughts about them, and that those people control where he ends up when it, when it dies, Well, that wealthy and powerful individual will be willing to do whatever it takes to get those people on his his or her side. You need land? Done. You need towns and fields to feed you? You got it. More churches? Really? You promised to put in a good word for me with big guns upstairs then, right? Fine. Coming right up. This spiritual ecosystem was directly dependent on the political and economic ones. Churches, to be clear, are just as ingrained in the other two as the other two are with them. So below the king, on more or less equal footing within the kingdom, were both the church and the king's barons, also called those tenants-in-chief, which says something too. Even barons were only really tenants. But see, the churches weren't exceptional in that way either. Within the church, each archbishop or bishop, well, they were also known as tenants-in-chief, just like the barons. And they were both required to offer knights and soldiers, fully supplied, mind you, when the king required them. So the church was also a part of the military ecosystem within a kingdom as well. 
Now, beneath the bishops and the barons were their own well-placed noblemen called under-tenants. These lower noblemen, like their tenants-in-chief, simply farmed out smaller parcels of land, which fed ultimately to the bishop or the baron at the top of that region. These under-tenants were the ones who dealt with the peasantry directly, pretty typically anyway, and they very often dealt with them rather harshly. Peasants actually break down into their own groups too, which is interesting. You had the free peasantry, who were the ones who farmed out the work to serfs, who actually did the work. And if you were a wealthier freeman, you might even have a certain number of slaves beneath your serfs. Now, these slaves, to be clear, were from places such as Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Iberia, or even the mainland. Vikings love to bring Slavs, which is, as I've said before in the podcast, Slav is where we get the word slave in the first place. And Vikings loved it. Everywhere they went to sell into slavery were these Slavs put up on the, the slave markets. So there's that as well. From services and labor to taxes and rent, given in products, currency, and food, these undertenants would take a piece before passing the majority of it up the ladder to the barons in charge, who then grew wealthier and wealthier because their neighbor barons were always in competition with them. So a show of power and influence and wealth went a long way in impressing the king who really held them all in his grip. See how the whole system works? The king, then there was the church and the baronage, then there was the undertenants, then there was the peasantry, which included free peasants, serfs, and slaves. So what does this all have to do with Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury and Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Morris writes, quote, By the mid-1070s, William was increasingly embroiled in events on the continent and may have decided that grants needed to be made, once again, on the basis of security, rather than in deference to existing patterns of English landholding. If England was in the hands of reliable men, William's own hands would be free to fight battles elsewhere. End quote. Morris also wonders whether this change was all Odo's doing, not William's. Knowing Odo and how willing he was to take advantage of his place in the kingdom in the absence of brother-in-law William for much of the 1070s, it very well could have been Odo's fault, that is. In fact, Odo began to start divvying out the land himself, which was totally totally stepping on William's toes in a way. Either way, this is the way it went for quite a while. Lanfranc then takes the helm of the English church, and he sees what's on the surface, a rather smooth operation. However, just beneath the surface was a roiling, tumultuous ocean of disruption to somewhat ancient practices, according to Morris, who writes the following, quote, Described in this way, the Norman settlement and colonization of England can sound like a fairly orderly process. The king grants land to his leading men in return for military service. They keep some themselves and distribute the rest to others. There is disruption and upheaval at a local level as castles are built, especially if these castles are the center of new territorial lordships. 
yet the impression of order remains, both in the way land is distributed and the way that new patterns of landholding are imposed. It is without doubt a misleading impression, for it masks the considerable chaos and confusion that the process of settlement entailed. End quote. But with two powerful people making the decisions with different prerequisites for baronage, conflict was bound to occur. In the case of the son of Count Guibert, one of William's guardians who used to jump out of windows to save the young duke's life, this guy's name was Richard Fitzgilbert, after Oda was given Kent, well, William rewarded the son of a man who gave his life to him years earlier, the son also fought along William at Hastings, that is Richard Fitzgilbert, so that helped too. Well, he gave Richard Fitzgilbert the territory around Tonbridge. Tonbridge is, it's probably Toonbridge, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. Tonbridge is located in Odo's Kent. Odo let it slide. But Morris recounts that by the time of the Doomsday Book in 1087, this now Richard of Tonbridge had gotten a bit froggy and began to expand his territory, as Morris puts it, quote, illegally seizing three manors in neighboring Surrey, end quote. And, another quote, relieved a number of monks in Rochester of several properties in the same county, end quote. So this Richard of Tonbridge was on the move. As it turns out, by the Doomsday Book of 1087, Richard of Tonbridge was one of the richest men in the whole kingdom. But how? If everything you have is owed to the king, really, but the king didn't give you any more, how on earth could you expand your riches short of growing Tonbridge to a bustling market city rivaling London? I'd reckon that the answer isn't going to be found on the right side of the law. Just my guess. Morris brings up an interesting point, too. He asks about the dispossessed Englishman. He writes, quote, of old, he might have appealed to the king's representative in the Shire, the Shire Reeve, or Sheriff, as we know today. After all, sheriffs have had been introduced during the reign of Ethelred the Unready as a means of un, or excuse me, as a means of checking the influence of the king's mightier servants, the earls. But since the conquest, the English sheriffs had been for the most part swept away and replaced by Norman newcomers. End quote. So the sheriff, essentially, the Shire Reeve, the sheriff was created as a counterbalance to the earl. Now he adds later, quote, plentiful evidence exists to show that when it came to land and landholding, the supposed gamekeepers were the worst poachers of all, end quote. One of the worst Norman sheriffs to hit the island were Sheriff Erse de Abateau of Worcester, who built a castle intentionally cutting a ditch right through the monk's graveyard. And the other one was Pico the sheriff, who took, o who took over in and around Ely after Hereward the Wake's rebellion. 12th century monks, according to Morris, still referred to this Pico the sheriff, still referred to him as, quote, a hungry lion, a roving wolf, a crafty fox, a filthy pig, a shameless dog, end quote. By the year 1077, this practice had become so pernicious that William, 
back in Normandy dealing with his son's recent tantrum and siege of Rouen, wrote to his highest-ranking men in England to knock it off. Morris poignantly adds that Richard of Tonbridge was one of these guys, like, by name, in the letter. In addition, the letter states unequivocally that they should give all the land they stole or acquired through quote-unquote intimidation or violence back to the church. This was without question done with a great amount of influence from Archbishop Lanfranc. William's job is to keep the peace, including taking care of the men who had followed him and fought beside him. But he also had his eternal soul to look after. He couldn't afford to ignore (laughs) Archbishop Lanfranc. Which brings us back to Lanfranc and Odo. Near Maidstone at Penenden Heath, now just an hour and 44-minute drive straight southeast down the M20 from London, see, back in 1072, when all that wasn't there, Lanfranc, just two years into his archbishopric, held a meeting, again, at Maidstone. And at this meeting, he learned of the extent of Norman illegality toward the English. Specifically, since they were in the southeast, it was Odo's dealings that were really under the microscope. The problem was, Canterbury was one of the lands in dispute. Stigand dealt with it, probably because he knew his own time was limited. But Lanfranc, Lanfranc was hand-picked by William. He had leverage, just like Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Morris writes, quote, So numerous were the lands in dispute, we are told that the hearing went on for three days, by the end of which Canterbury's rights were vindicated, end quote. Now, great for Canterbury, of course, but other churches weren't so fortunate. Orderic Vitalis says, quote, Holy monasteries had good cause to complain that Odo was doing them great harm, violently and unjustly robbing them of ancient endowments made by pious Englishmen, end quote. Evesham Abbey records Odo as both, quote-unquote, a tyrant and a ravening wolf. Apparently, Odo's doings weren't forgotten, and the Doomsday Book is chock full of complaints against the king's half-brother. So back in Guimond's words, he says again, I, I deem all England to be the spoils of robbery. Well, by all accounts, England was ravaged in the 20 years that comprised its first Norman king's reign. But Lanfranc and Odo, in large part because of this ravaging, had it out in the late 1070s, which set Odo on a very bad path with both the kingdom and the king. And here's the thing. The records don't indicate much except that Odo was put in his place and all of the grievances the English and the English church had, including his stealing of property in and around Canterbury, all came to the light. Odo was exposed. The people he'd suppressed for the better part of 15 years now knew exactly the extent of the Norman bishop's crimes. But I think Odo could have gotten away with a lot more, a lot longer, had he not gone after Canterbury. I understand why he would have, considering Archbishop Stigand had no leg to stand on when it came to bringing up corruption charges, most notably against the king's brother-in-law, not to mention Odo was a member of a new foreign ruling class in England. So Odo felt he could drop William's name and get what he wanted on the island. However, the moment Lanfranc came to English shores, 
a continental bishop who already had close and respected connections to Rome, mind you. Odo should have been smarter than that, and he should have given those lands back to Canterbury immediately. Lanfranc was not someone to trifle with, and it's not even like it was a secret. Everybody knew who this Lanfranc guy was. It's like, it's like the biggest trade in the NFL, right? Or, or you know, in world soccer. It, it, it's the biggest trade. You know what you're getting with Lanfranc long before he comes. He should, have been, he should have been smarter, in my opinion. This whole idea of Norman rule in England truly did fundamentally change the way the islanding, island kingdom worked. It cut as deep as the peasantry. Though, as a rule, the peasantry certainly tried to stay out of it, barring them from being called up to serve some baron or another for military duty. Either way, who you pay your taxes and rent to directly affects how much taxes and rent you pay. And comparing these bigger ideas to our own world today, here's one lesson to think about. When it comes to power, once it's given, it's rarely, if ever, given back voluntarily. It's pretty poignant in recent years. Lanfranc went the distance, heard the complaints against Odo, compiled the argument against the wayward greedy bishop, and then brought them to the king, who issued a statement requiring Odo to return lands taken from the church and given back to the church. It wasn't a, a complete justice given across Odo's English land holdings, but it was a major step in forcing the powerful Earl to relinquish what he'd stolen. And I think more than that, it set a precedent. And this was the beginning of the end for Bishop Odo of Bayeux. Keep an eye out for Odo's story as we jump back into Robert Curthose's rebellion against William. But I want to leave you with a question to ponder here. Why would a bishop seek and usurp so much land and wealth? To what end would he ever need it all? Just put a pin in that one for now, yeah? On the next episode, William crosses the dike. Until next time.